Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We are beginning a new message series called Gloriously Woven. Uh, by the way, one thing that we do is we have little message series notebooks. They're on the back tables, they're out in the foyer, on the stands, as well as at the Welcome Center. You can pick one of them up. Uh, they simply outline for the Sundays coming up. Uh, mostly blank lines that enable you to fill in, jot down some notes, hopefully look at that through the week to just kind of keep track of what's happening. So you can pick one of them up, and uh, yeah, hopefully that just enables you to continue to walk with God throughout the week. When I say the word woven, uh, what are maybe some things that come to your mind? Just sort of shout out, yell out, yell it out to me. What are some things that come to your mind? Maybe images, things that you picture when I say the word woven. Anybody want to throw out? Basket. Basket. All right. Basket. Man, Sam even raised his hand. You get like extra credit. Uh, <laughs> Carpet, carpet, awesome. Any, any other thoughts? Fabric. Fabric. Baby. 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 Awesome. You know what? You're, that's actually so cool. Yeah, we're woven together. And actually, we're going to pick up on that verse in a couple weeks. Uh, baby, human life. Um, those are actually like perfect images that come to my mind. And so along with that, underneath that, here's some other ideas that I connect to that as well. When I think of woven, I think of deliberate. That comes in the wovenness of a human life. Comes in the wovenness of a basket, a piece of fabric. It's something that's deliberate. It's not hodgepodge. Our series, our series is not called Gloriously Tangled. Uh, like tangled has different connotations than woven. A couple other things kind of come to my mind as well. When I think of woven, it also expresses something very micro, but also something very macro. You can almost put something under a microscope and you can see incredible intricateness of it being woven a human life, a basket, a piece of fabric. You can put it under a microscope and see the threads that are woven together. See the design that's part of the complexity of what you're looking at. But it's also something macro. The micro becomes a basket. The micro becomes a human life. The micro becomes a piece of fabric. And so the title is Gloriously Woven. It's beautifully designed, beautifully put together, both in the micro under the microscope as well as the macro in terms of the big picture. It also kind of is connected to what our culture struggles with in this era. And even what the church struggles with as well as followers of Jesus. We live in a world, and even 
As followers of Jesus, we live in a world that's often fragmented and polarized. Wouldn't you agree? It's fragmented. It's polarized. There's no connecting thread. There's no sense of wovenness throughout. It's fragmented. It's polarized. But gloriously woven carries connotations of being integrated and unified. Something entirely opposite, counter to that which is fragmented and polarized is something that is integrated and unified. And so throughout the series, we're going to be looking at how is it that through faith in Christ and the person of Christ, our lives, who we are as a body of Christ, his church, it's integrated and unified rather than fragmented and polarized. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And before we jump into that, I just want to kind of give you a kind of perspective of where Ephesians is in the Bible. It's a, it's a book, it's a letter that you find in the New Testament. Now, some of you have probably read the Bible multiple times. Uh, maybe some of you have grown up in church and see, you know exactly how the books of the Bible are lined up. For some of you, this is kind of very new, exploring what the Bible is, how does it work, and it can actually be pretty confusing. So first of all, the book of Ephesians is in the New Testament. The New Testament begins with the coming of Jesus. That's why it is the New Testament. It's the new relationship that God has with his people through the person of Jesus. The first four books in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, these together are called the Gospels. Uh, Gospels simply meaning good news. Something you may have heard as well is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three books, are called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, Think about the word synoptic. Uh, S-Y-N is the prefix for words like synonym, which means words that sound alike. So sin means that S-Y-N means these three are alike. They're synoptic. Optic means how you see something. So these are synoptic gospels because they see Jesus in sort of a common light. They tell the same stories, the account of Jesus' acts. Many of them share common stories, common threads of Jesus healing the blind, healing the sick, doing the miracles. There's a lot of content that's shared between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They see things similarly. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels. John is also included as one of the gospels, and they begin the New Testament because the New Testament is about the coming of Jesus and how that embarks on God's new relationship with humanity. And so it's appropriate that the New Testament begins with the account of Jesus' life. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the book of Acts. Uh, Acts begins exactly where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sort of leave off. These four leave off with the ascension of Jesus, the resurrection ascension. Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus. And so Acts might actually better be called, its official full name is Acts of the Apostles. And so Acts tells us 
about what the followers of Jesus did, particularly the apostles. Apostles simply means sent ones. What the, what the followers of Jesus did after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. How the work of Jesus continued through his followers. Now, one thing I often say, and I kind of love this. I love it that it's called the book of Acts. It's not called the book of musings. It's not called the book of wishful thinking. It's not even called the book of theology. It's called the book of Acts because Jesus' followers did stuff. It's not by accident that kind of our three core statements as a church are experience belonging, embrace God's grace, and what's the third? Extend God's love. What does extend God's love captured? It captures acts, like we do stuff. We commune with God. Our hearts and our lives are formed by Christ. But in all that happening, we actually do stuff. There's actions that we're called to. Well, throughout the book of Acts, you find especially the guy named the Apostle Paul. Uh, he does a lot of acts. He's traveling. He takes three different journeys through the then-known world. He travels to cities like um, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, a number of towns. And so following Acts, you have things like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc. And so following Acts are often letters that Paul writes to the places that he visited in Acts. That make sense? So in almost all of these cases, not just these, but other books, there's connections to the book of Acts because these are letters that Paul writes back to the places that he visited in Acts. And so the Romans is to the people of Rome. Corinthians is to the Corinth. Galatians is to an area of, of geography. And then there's Ephesus, because Paul visited Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You can go read that. Acts chapter 19, Paul visits Ephesus, and then he writes the letter of Ephesians to the people of Ephesus to follow up on his visits. And so that's kind of where Ephesians fits in this. Uh, notice there'll be a slide on the screens of a slide that you're probably familiar with. Uh, from the book of Revelation. If you could put up the map from the, yeah, so there's the island of Patmos, remember from Revelation, that's where John wrote the letter of Revelation. And then right above that is Ephesus. Ephesus is actually the first church that's mentioned in Revelation 2, so it's not that strange to us. So one of the first churches is actually the first church that the letter most likely went to as it made that circular route to the seven churches that, that uh, John was writing to. So this is the same Ephesus that Paul is writing to as well, except Paul's writing probably about you know, 25, 30 years earlier than John's letter of Revelation. So Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Now he's writing to them the letter of Ephesians, probably not only for the folks in Ephesus, but some surrounding churches as well, to follow up on his visit to them in the book of Acts. So that's kind of a pretty big picture of where Ephesians falls, both in the order of books in the Bible, as well as the background as to why we have it there. Uh, one other note, and maybe we'll dive into this at some other point. Uh, Ephesus was a significant city. Uh, we went through some of the background. We went through the book of Revelation. Had about 500,000 people. Was a metropolitan area. Maybe I'll just say this. 
Um, never be concerned as to whether or not God's truth can hold its own in metropolitan environments. Sometimes we maybe get a little bit squeamish as to, given the sophistication of intellects, philosophy, all kinds of things in our day, can, can this ancient word of God really hold up in the scrutiny and sophistication of metropolitan contexts? The Apostle Paul always targeted the educational centers that metropolises of the day. He always actually targeted some of the most influential cultural centers of the day. And so God's truth, we don't have to kind of hide it or protect it or think that it can't kind of withstand the intellectual rigor of our day. No, Paul was very comfortable talking about God's truth, whether it was in the city of Athens or the city of Ephesus. He was confident that it would stand up to scrutiny. We're going to jump in into Ephesians chapter 4. In some ways, I don't like doing that because what comes before Ephesians 4, the first three chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3, where Paul provides a foundation for what he's going to say in chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about what it means to be rooted and grounded in God's truth. We'll reference that a little bit more in a, in, in a bit, but we're going to just jump in in Ephesians chapter 4. and Ephesians chapter 4, Paul kind of moves from the ideas of what is true about the people in Ephesus to now how they should live that out, what it looks like. He's already told them who they are. Now he's about ready to tell them how that functions in their lives. And ask Abby to come up, and she is going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Um, I know Abby breathes a sigh of relief, and probably so do you, that it's not quite as hard as some of the reading we did in Revelation. Uh, but here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you, Abby. Uh, so Paul reminds us, that for us to have unity, for us to walk as God wants us to walk, there's, there's three things that if Christ is gloriously woven through these things, we actually become the people that God desires us to be. The first one is God, the essence of Christ, who he is, needs to be gloriously woven through identity, through our beings, through the core of who we are. Look at verse 1. Paul says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Look at the first two words that are underlined there. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you. Paul does not simply say, as a prisoner, I urge you. He doesn't simply say, I urge you. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord. In other words, Paul did not disconnect 
the circumstances of his life, what he was experiencing from God. Instead, it was primarily his connection to the Lord, that the Lord is over all, through all, and in all, that frames, that's the essence of Paul's core. Maybe we could put it like this. It's not so much who you are, but whose you are. It's not so much where you are, but whose you are. If you're ever going to try to figure out, and our modern day era has a lot of this, if you're going to try to figure out who you are, the way to do that is not necessarily to begin with yourself. If you begin with yourself and saying, what's the core of who I am? What's the essence of who I am? Let me figure out who exactly I am on this planet. The way to begin to answer the question of who you are is not to begin with yourself. The way to begin the question of who you are is first, whose you are. Maybe if you're in challenging circumstances, the way to begin to process that is not by focusing on your circumstances, not by focusing on the world around you, not by focusing on what's immediate and visible. The key is, whose are you? And so the question is not who you are or where you are. It's whose you are. You always figure out who you are based on whose you are. If you try to figure out yourself, if you try to figure yourself out based on your own self-ownership, you'll miss the mark. In Ephesians chapter 1, let me just reference a couple of comments that Paul makes about whose he is. And he sees himself in perspective, not first to being a prisoner, Not even to being an apostle, but first and foremost, Paul says, my primary essence, the core of who I am is that I belong to God. I'm the Lord's. In Ephesians chapter 1, all these statements I'm going to read are directly out of Ephesians 1. Here's what Paul says, bless, kids, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Is, Is that part of the core of who you are, that first and foremost, you see yourself as being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Is that, does that ring at the essence of who you are? That no matter what happens to you, what your circumstances are, what confusion you may have, first and foremost, you see yourself as being chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He says, we are adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. At the essence, at the core of who you are, do you see yourself as being adopted as God's son and his daughter, even before the foundation of the world? Is that the core, is that the essence of who you are as a human being. He says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. At the essence of who you are, does it drip with the forgiveness of God? Does it drip with his forgiveness or does your essence drip with guilt and shame? And beating yourself up. 
He says, we are, lav- we are lavished with the riches of his grace. At the essence, at the core of your being, do you see yourself as being just lavished with the grace of God? Do you meditate on that? Do you reflect on that? Does not, is that not just sort of information in your brain, but is that absorbed into your being? Is, is it absorbed into the core of who you are? Do you reflect on that? And it becomes the essence of what it means to be you, that you're lavished with the riches of his grace. Is that peripheral or is that the core of who you are? He says we exist to the praise of his glory. When you look at your life, it's sort of the core essence of your life is that you see yourself as existing according to the praise of his glory. Is that what rings your bell? Is that part of your essence? Is that the core foundation of your life? One last one. We are seated in him with the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Like at the core of your essence, at the core of your being, woven throughout who you are, is it a sense that you are absolutely sealed, that you belong to God, that the Holy Spirit indwells you? Are those things woven through who you are? Are they concepts that you give intellectual assent to with your brain? Or are they gloriously woven through your being? Paul says, it's not who I am. It's whose I am. It's not where I am. It's whose I am. Is Christ woven through your being, your core, your essence, your identity? Does Christ woven through you, through your life, affect the micro as well as the macro? Does it touch every fiber in your life? Let me just give you some ideas of maybe what that looks like. Is Christ woven through the rays that you get at work? Is Christ woven through the health problems that you have? When you wake up in the morning, do you ask God to have Christ woven throughout your day? Is Christ woven through your going to church? Is Christ woven through your disagreements with your spouse? Is Christ woven through your TV watching habits? Is Christ woven through your scrolling, clicking, and swiping? Is Christ woven through what you budget for purchasing food and clothing, utilities, and entertainment? Is Christ woven through what you allocate to the Lord in terms of your finances? Is Christ woven through what you listen to in the car or the conversations that you have with your family? Is Christ woven through your texting and through your posting? Is Christ woven through your time allocations and your prayers? Is Christ woven through that? Is he gloriously woven through the micro as well as the macro picture of your life? Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord. Yes, he's a prisoner. And most likely he's not tucked away somewhere in a Roman dungeon. He's probably under some kind of house arrest, but he's confined. He says, yes, I'm a prisoner, but it's for the Lord because he's woven through who I am. There's no circumstance. There's no place where I am. There's no condition that I find myself that Christ is not gloriously woven and his presence is not gloriously woven through me. 
This is my core, the essence of who I am. My being is gloriously woven with the presence of Christ. Next, he says, not only the core of who I am, but my calling as well. Not just my essence, not just my being, not just my identity, but that's also reflected in my calling. What I respond to, the trajectory of my life, where my life is headed. It's also gloriously woven with the person of Christ. Here's what he says again, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That little phrase, live a life, is actually a translation of a single word that simply means walk. Uh, The most common metaphor for our daily lives in Scripture is the word walk. Now, quite honestly, it's a challenge in a lot of our lives uh, because we kind of live during a time where we live sort of in the passion of the moment. We live in in responding to the call of our desires. We have to stay inspired to kind of stick with it. It's what we feel most profoundly at the moment. Somebody has said the, the hardest thing about living the Christian life is that it's so daily. And that's exactly the case. It's called the Christian walk. Embracing God's grace is not simply once upon a time I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Instead, embracing God's grace means embracing the fact that Christ is gloriously woven through your life Every day, on a daily basis, in every moment, you're responding to his call to be his. Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. Again, this is coming back to Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart. So he says, our, he says, our hearts have eyes. Like our hearts see stuff. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his, what his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul says, I pray that you're, the eyes of your heart, and I just love that connect. the eyes of your heart, Your heart, your being, your essence, it stares at something. It's drawn, there's something pulling you toward it. There's something calling you toward it. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, like where your heart is peering, what your heart is looking at, what kind of captures your imagination, I pray that that's the, the hope of God's calling. I pray that that's the sense of the richness of what Christ's call means in your life. Maybe I can get it to you. Maybe can, this, this helps. Now, this week I was, uh, I sometimes kind of see my heart best when I'm driving. And so um, that's usually not a good thing. Uh, but this week I was, you know, I was driving somewhere. And there was a series of a couple of lights. And one of my pet peeves is when you're in traffic at a light, and there's kind of like the green arrow thing, and there's a long, kind of, a long line of cars coming the opposite direction. 
And you know that once the green arrow goes, it grows to yellow arrow and then a red arrow. So it's not like you can kind of like wait for the next opening. So here's my philosophy of how this should work. When that arrow goes green, you should be on the bumper of the guy in front of you, right? Like, if you're the 10th car in line, this is what drives me. If you're the 10th car in line, it's like I have one guy there, two, and there's this big gap in the intersection. It's like, what is guy four number doing? Well, like, what, what, what is guy number four? Wait, like, get into the intersection. I'm car number 10. At that moment, my heart is enlightened by me wanting to get to the intersection on the green arrow. That's what calls me. That's what draws me. That's what pulls me. At that moment, that's my calling. My calling is to get through the intersection and to do that, like, come on, get through it. The guys are, like, be on the bumper of the guy ahead of you so that guy number 10, me, can get through it. (laughs) My heart is enlightened to that, right? That's what captures me. That's what's beautiful to me in that, it's beautiful to me to get through that light on the green arrow. And so Paul says, like, what's calling you? Like, what's beautiful? What's, what's pulling you? What's saying to you, you got to get this? Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God so that they can have their best life, so that things go smoothly. So that everything works out like they would like it. Like, I wish the verse said that. But here's what it says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And I just wish it would kind of stop there so that I could interpret it in my own way. And I could say, yeah, like God's on my side. Like he's going to make things go my way. But here's what it says. To those who are called according to his purpose. Like, don't you wish it said your purpose? Like, I would love that. Like, like wouldn't you love it if Romans 8 said, like, God's going to work everything out according to how you're called by your purpose. That would be awesome. Except it wouldn't be. It's according to his purposes. We have the calling of our desires. We have the calling to be successful. We have a calling from the expectations of those around us. We have the calling of our own expectations. We have the calling for pleasure. We have the calling for accomplishment. We have a calling for receiving affirmation and approval. We have the calling for productivity. Those things bring life to us but they're small callings. Your primary calling is a response to the God who's gloriously woven in the person of Christ through the essence of your being. Am I more drawn? Are the eyes of my heart more enlightened 
by the riches of proving I'm right than the riches of being chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Are the eyes of my heart more enlightened and more drawn by the riches of nobody interrupting my schedule than I am by my, the eyes of my heart being enlightened by the lavishness of his grace poured out on me? Are your eyes more enlightened, more focused on your shame, your guilt, your inadequacy, your fear, than they are that you're adopted as God's sons and daughters? What captures the eyes of your heart? What calling is your being responding to? Is it the person of Jesus? Is Jesus gloriously woven through what your eyes are enlightened to? What enlightens you? What captures your imagination? What are your eyes fixated on? Paul desires that the glory of Christ be woven through our being, our essence, that it be woven through our calling. Then lastly, he mentions our attitudes and actions. We'll look much more about this in the coming weeks. He says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He lines a number of words up, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. What, what's interesting is that word, the idea of humility. In the Greek culture, that was never spoken of in a positive way. Only in scripture is the idea of humility seen as a positive quality, a positive characteristic. In the Roman world, in the Greek world, humility was seen as something to be absolutely avoided. Why would you ever subjugate yourself to another? And so the only thing that was held of value was domination, a sense of superiority. Nowhere in ancient Greek literature is humility ever seen as something which is positive, something which is helpful? You know what changed that? Only the person of Christ. It was actually Jesus' death on a cross that literally changed our whole world's perspective on humility to begin to see it as something helpful. Just be completely, not just completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Let me tell you, friends, we mentioned earlier that in our, in our world, we see fragmentation and polarization. Why is that? It's because we lack humility. In fact, in today's environment, we know that social media, what generates clicks is not humility. 
It's not gentleness. It's not patience. It's not bearing with one another. What generates clicks is being brash. What generates clicks is putting someone in their place. What generates followers is telling it like it is. What generates attention, what generates following is putting someone in their place and establishing yourself as the winner and somebody else as the loser. That's the tone of our culture because God is not gloriously woven through our beings. He's not gloriously woven through our callings. We're to be humble, gentle, patient, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. They're core qualities of what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus. Verse 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Listen, friends, here's something that we need to wrestle with. Our role as followers of Jesus, as we relate to one another and to those in the outside world, is not simply to tell it like it is. At Southridge, we, like you can tell if you come here on a weekly basis, like we believe this is God's word. We believe it's his truth. We want it to confront us. But our goal is not simply saying the truth and forgetting about the rest. Because Paul says that yes, you can speak the truth, listen to this, but tone matters. Our demeanor matters. Do we have a demeanor of gentleness, humility, kindness, bearing with one another. Uh, the, Satan, listen to this, Satan quoted scripture. So being faithful to the truth of God's word is not simply the only goal. We can, be, we can speak God's truth with a tone of hostility, with a tone of meanness, with a tone of brashness. And let me tell you, it generates followers. It generates listeners. We're to be faithful to Scripture, but with a demeanor and a tone of humility, of gentleness, of kindness, of seeking unity. It's pretty significantly contrasted to our world. Verses four through six. Notice there's seven times that the word one happens in these three verses. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you are called to be to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to invite our team back up. And we're going to close our service by singing the song, 10,000 Reasons. 
Friends, as followers of Jesus, if Christ is gloriously woven through the essence of who we are, through the core of our beings, if he's gloriously woven through our calling, what we're responsive to, what the eyes of our heart are captured by, if he's gloriously woven through our attitudes and actions, there's thousands of reasons for us to be unified in Christ. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so rather than being fragmented and polarized, we're integrated and unified because there's 10,000 reasons of the glorious ways that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are woven through our lives, through our church. He's over all. He's through all. He's in all. So let's stand and sing the song, and let's sing this as a declaration of thousands of reasons for us to be united under this one God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your Yeah.
you are in all. May you be gloriously woven through our lives. May the eyes of our heart be open and enlightened to your goodness, your greatness, and your power. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless. May God be over all, through all, and in all this week.